3: Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb.
2: And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're back with part two of our discussion of the invention of board games. Now, in the last episode, we talked a lot about the uh, the idea of what play is and what games are and how they emerge from our biology. And the fact that this is still an open question, we talked about a lot of the evidence and the theories about why uh, why play exists in animals, what purpose it serves, if it might be biologically adaptable. Adaptive in one way or another, the idea of that maybe it trains us for future skills, that maybe it signals fitness, that maybe it makes us more versatile and able to deal with unexpected events, and all kinds of things like that. We also talked about uh, theories about why. Abstracted versions of play like board games emerged that maybe it was in order to sublimate a, a comp- competitive instinct that could be violent if not given an outlet like games. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, don't punch each other in the face, play a little rock 'em, sock 'em robots instead. <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, and, and then also the idea that there is a deep inherent link between board games, the earliest known board games, and the practice of divination or sortilege, where you might do things like cast lots to figure out the will of the gods or answer a question by consulting some type of pseudo-random object or event. You know, you throw knuckle bones and see what the gods are telling you, or consult the I Ching, mm-hmm. and that, that these kinds of things could have given way to board games that also involve casting. Of lots or rolling of knucklebones to see how many spaces you get to move on a board.
3: Right, and we see that legacy continue in modern games: uh, Mystery Date, the Game of Life that we already mentioned, mm-hmm. and th- though this is not technically a game, it is still kind of lumped into the same uh, similar category. Certainly, something you can buy at a toy store. But the Magic Eight Ball, the Magic Eight Ball is a toy that is obviously. Uh, just overtly a divination tool, mm-hmm. but one that as uh, – I would say usually uh, – I don't know. I would say that even as a kid when I used a magic eight ball, there was a sense of wanting it to be real. Like there was a uh, – you, you leaned into the magic, into the the sort of the divine aspect of the practice, even though you knew that this was was not actually a you know a hotline to the fates or that god had anything to do with what was happening in the ball
2: oh wait robert do you hear that
3: yeah wh- whoa what is that i something kind of cutting in
1: cuddle cat fish, to the second oil age and his kingdom was full of darkness
0: i don't dispute the eros data but if he's down here we'd know
1: not blood but darkness the earth's
0: black riches
1: no i could taste
0: it on my lips today i want to talk to you about the science of transgenesis Transgenesis.
1: transgenesis.show
2: oh I, i guess it's gone now maybe it wasn't anything
3: yeah, yeah. I just heard like a high pitched, uh, like, like uh, glitchy noise. Oh, Robert, you got a bit of blood in the corner oh. of your eye. Oh my goodness. I, yeah, I'm, ble- I'm bleeding from around my. Let me get, get cleaned up here, and we can keep going. I'm good. I'm good.
2: Well, if I can get off topic for just a second here. Oh, of course. I do think that there actually is that the eight ball and other divination methods, like the Ouija board and all that. Mm-hmm. You know, we we can laugh at like the the strict uh, religious authorities and adults who say, don't fool around with the Ouija board, you Mm -hmm. know, you're inviting demons in. Or they might say the same thing about the magic eight ball. On one hand, that's kind of funny. But on the other hand, of course, I'm not suggesting like real spiritual demons actually come in and and possess you if you play with a Ouija board. I do think playing with a Ouija board can be kind of dangerous because it suggests a divinatory frame of mind, even if you don't go in believing in it. I -hmm. bet you've had this experience of playing around with something like this, not believing it has any real magical power. But then once you've played the game, you kind of start to wonder and it tempts you. It tempts you to think in. Terms of fate, in terms of like the intervention of, of other otherworldly forces in your life, if you play with it enough, I can see how it could really suck your mind into that cast of thinking, which can be harmful.
3: Well, even just um, just you know marginal exposure to something to to that kind of thinking can have an effect. I, I think back to the episode of stuff to blow your mind we did on uh, the Chinese zodiac, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you know the, with the, the the lunar calendar, the different uh, uh, zodiac animals associated with each year. And the sort of uh, the the loose to complicated uh, characteristics that are aligned with individuals born in each year. Mm-hmm. And how you saw – when you look at the birth statistics, you see this this bump uh, during years of the dragon, the most auspicious uh, year. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we found is that this didn't – you didn't see this occurring because necessarily people were just like hardcore Chinese astrology believers. But – the, they were there. Were other things, probably more important things, of uh, impacting their their choices. But then this thing was in the background, like mm-hmm. a casual understanding of the zodiac, and then that ended up, perhaps, the argument is um, uh, influencing their choices. So just having something like the the eight ball or the Ouija board or astrology or whatever supernatural model you want to lean on, just having it there in the background uh, can conceivably be enough to to tweak your choices. You
2: know, and I wonder if this can be extended into partially explaining why games of chance have sometimes historically, and even sometimes by by a few people today, been considered dangerous. Mm-hmm. Because if there is this kind of danger, you know, even if there aren't really spirits that are going to come mess with you, there is a kind of danger in setting your mind to the cast of thinking that is encouraged by divination methods. And that rolling dice to play a game of chance is in a way a form of divination. It is kind of a slightly abstracted sortilage practice.
3: Now, I also want to remind everybody, since it you know may have been a week since you listened to the last episode, we're going to talk a little bit as we continue about sort of the, the what I'm thinking of are the three corners of gaming. Okay. There you're going to have the mechanics of the game. That's the, the rules, the system of rules that dictate how it's played. The skeleton. The skeleton, yeah. Who wins, how they win, et cetera. Then you have the fluff, which, especially in modern games, this is the the, the story, the characters, the setting, the, the illustration, yeah, the illustrations, the... and then you have the material aspect of it, which could be as simple as a board and some sort of uh, you know a dice. Uh, or it is uh, something more elaborate like it re- you know, requires a pop-o-matic bubble or you know, the battleship set requires this whole plastic interface, etc.
2: The omega virus uh, yeah, robot yes. that talks to you. And, yeah. Or the videotape you put in with the you, the one who is moving now.
3: Right. Or there are a lot of games uh, you know, nowadays – or there are a lot of games that have just required timers. You need that hourglass, right? Uh, but a lot of games now that either have a timing element or something more complicated than that will require you to use an app. Which uh, which it can also be used to great effect.
2: Well, I think we should then try to turn our attention to what is the earliest known evidence of physical apparatus for for these types of ab- abstract games like board games. What's the earliest evidence we have that somebody was playing something like a board game? Well, when you start
3: diving back through history, you find that some of the what is considered the earliest a- archaeological evidence for board games pops up in the Neolithic Middle East around 7,000
2: BCE. Wow, board games 9,000 years ago. Yeah,
3: but this would have been the time. In which uh, individuals living in this region were beginning to find social leisure and security uh, on a regular basis for the first time. Hmm. So they were feeling safe enough. They were feeling secure enough in you know, how much food they had available that they had, say, uh, you know, a few minutes in the afternoon to scratch some, uh, a grid into the, the dirt and maybe move a few pebbles around.
2: Now, I would think a grid scratched into the dirt would not survive 9,000 years. So what is the physical evidence we have that people were playing games like this at the time?
3: Well, that is one of the key the key challenges because we tend to find what might be the board's or the pieces, and sometimes it can be difficult to tr- figure out exactly what we're looking at. You know, mm-hmm. uh, indeed, if it's something as simple as pegs and stones, or little holes drilled in stones, or some sort of a grid in stones, it, there's a fair amount of interpretation figuring out why people made these marks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Certainly, we're not going to find anything like the rules for ancient – if, if if you have a game that is predating written language, there is no rule book right. to, to go by. It would have just been an oral tradition. So it's not always easy to say, yes, this was probably part of a game. This was something that served little or no purpose outside of leisure. For instance, there's the Neolithic Beta site, which uh, dates back to somewhere between uh, 7200 and 6500 BCE, and it's near Petra, Jordan uh and uh, this is one of many ancient sites where we have we find stone slabs with three parallel rows of regular holes and this might have been an early precursor to uh Mancala.
2: Ah, okay.
3: Which is of course uh, one of the world's most ancient games uh and one that you, we still find versions of throughout the world. You can usually buy it at a store even.
2: I remember a version of Mancala got popular at my school I think when I was in I don't know, something like sixth grade. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Uh, I think they had, it has comebacks occasionally.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, it's one of these you just see. I, I don't think I've ever owned a copy, but you, you, you see it around. Like it's, it, for something with such ancient origins, it's mm-hmm. still very much
2: alive. Basically, it involves like you get to go along a series of ho- holes or impressions, dropping in seeds or stones one at a time and like counting out the number of places you get to go.
3: Right. It's generally colored beads nowadays, but but uh, the older model would have probably used seeds or beans. And uh, this might reveal its origins as a fertility ritual for early agricultural societies. Mm. Again, getting into, a little bit into the divination, and a little bit into the, the magical, perhaps, origins of games.
2: That's really interesting, the idea, yeah, so seeds, agriculture, and fertility, but also having perhaps some kind of divinatory role? Exactly,
3: yeah. And uh, these were pretty wide- widespread to the, p- the point that uh, Mancala games are, are even a whole category of ancient games in some classifications. Now, there are different classifications for, for games and board games that you'll find, depending on who the scholar is that's mm-hmm. uh, doing the analysis. But for instance, uh, Harold James, uh, Ruthren Murray... Uh, is one of the individuals who categorized games, and he he said, "Okay, well, we have Mencala games. That's a category. Uh, but then he had other uh, games. For instance, alignment and configuration games. The most uh, obvious example of this is Tic Tac Toe, Connect Four. Connect Four, I think, would probably count. Uh, basic principles the same." You have war games. Of course, uh, the, the the classic example there is chess, mm-hmm. but uh, you can throw in your Warhammer games. You can throw in your Risk games. I mean, these are all essentially games that simulate warfare. Then there are hunting games. Uh, I don't think I've played one of these, or at least I don't think I have, but Fox and Geese uh, is an example that pops up in different cultures.
2: This was the hardest category for me to understand. I think maybe it involves sort of like collecting pieces, like you compete to collect them or something.
3: Yeah, it kind of makes more sense if you if you look at a picture of it. So if you do a search for fox and geese games, you'll see some some images. Uh, then there are race games, and uh, the, the prime example here is backgammon.
2: I don't think I've ever played backgammon, so I don't actually know how you do it.
3: Well, it's it's a pretty ancient game that, uh, it, but is also apparently a descendant of uh, the two-row Roman dice game Twelve Lines, which itself was based on older forms of the same mechanic. Yeah, and this so, is something you see t- with a lot of these games. It's just this continual evolution of form. Games are passed on almost virally from culture to culture, and new spins are put on them. Because for a certain, to a certain extent, especially when they're when it's just oral tradition. Uh, you know, it's, going, it's like a game of telephone, but with the game rules, mm-hmm. uh, levels of complexity and simplification uh, altering across the centuries.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the key insights of, of the study of games is that games are just are not fixed. They always change.
3: Yeah, like even something like Monopoly, which we'll, we'll, we'll get into more later, but it's easy for me especially to think, OK, Monopoly is this awful game that never changes.
2: Oh, yeah. We learned that last time. You hate Monopoly. I hate
3: Monopoly. Yeah, then you go to the store and there's some new version of Monopoly and it's the same version of Monopoly, just with oh, different right, pictures. Yeah. They just tweak the fluff. Uh-huh. Like they, you can even get Warhammer 40,000 Monopoly.
2: Star Wars Monopoly. Yeah. Yeah,
3: but but even but I say that, but Deuce
2: Bigelow monopoly.
3: (laughs) I say this, but I was just talking to Scott uh, Benjamin, who helped us uh, research this episode, and he pointed out that actually you do see evolution in. Monopoly. There's the Millennial Monopoly that came out where they've altered the rules, not only the fluff but the rules itself to indicate that you're not you're not buying things, you're renting things. Hmm. And then of course there there's also like a card game based on Monopoly. There are other games with the same franchise and similar fluff. Wait
2: a minute, if you're renting them, how do you how do you call, what do you your sublease when people land on your tiles on the board? I don't know. Uh Community Chest is replaced with, like, a Take a Puff of the Jewel.
3: Well, as long as the... As long as the game ends the same way, all Monopoly games end, and that is with friends mad at each other. That's all that counts. That's
2: not my experience. <laughs> that's my experience with Risk is that <laughs> Risk makes people hate each other. Okay.
3: I never played Risk. I had friends who were really into it. But yeah. that's one that also goes really long, right?
2: Uh, it can. And Risk Risk is like the number one offender for, for outing table flippers, <laughs> for you know letting you know which of your friends is actually a really bad sport. You <laughs> find out through Risk. Yeah. You know, thinking back to Monopoly, and then I
3: think, you know, I had friends who were playing Risk, too, is that part of it is like a really long game that's played at night in many cases. And mm-hmm. so you've just been doing it for so long. Mm-hmm. You're tired. You need to go home. You need to go to sleep. But you're still stuck in this low stakes uh, BS. And then, yeah, eventually you just got to flip the table. Well,
2: elements make it worse. Most often I'd say played... For a long time at night by adult men who've maybe been consuming alcohol. Oh, so yeah. like, yeah.
3: It's a bad scene. It'll let the demons in for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to roll into some uh, some specific examples, some more specific examples of ancient games. And, and really, we can learn a lot about just the nature of board games in general by looking at what we know and what we don't know about these ancient pastimes.
2: Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: What kind of fun is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The, I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find, for the fun of it, kind of fun.
0: Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? All right, we're back. Now, earlier we talked about the idea that there is perhaps physical evidence of some type of unidentified neolithic board game uh, that's been found in – like near Petra in in Jordan uh, that was perhaps a form of the Moncala game type but we don't know for sure and that that was maybe like 7,000 BCE or mm-hmm. 9,000 years ago. The oldest game that we definitely really know about and are sure it's a game we have direct archaeological evidence of is a game from ancient Egypt called Sinet. That's
3: right. Also known uh, as the game of 30 squares.
2: Also known as the game of passing, which we'll get back to later. Uh, I think that's what Sinet actually means is passing.
3: So the, the dates range on this. So I, I've seen dates that that uh, say Senate goes back to roughly 3000 BCE.
2: Yeah, I've seen that there's evidence uh, traced to 3500 BCE or basically roughly the fourth millennium BCE.
3: Either way, it was played in pre-dynastic times and we can even turn to tomb paintings that that actually depict ancient Egyptians playing this game uh, during this
2: time period. Yeah, one famous one is an ancient Egyptian painting of Queen Nefertari, one of the wives of Ramses the Great. And this painting of Nefertari playing Senet is within the queen's own tomb. So in her tomb, in the Valley of Queens in Thebes, there's a painting of her playing a board game. That's dedication. I mean, she was probably nationally ranked. (laughs) Well, yeah, probably so. Now,
3: when you look at this illustration, I've actually seen this illustration wrongfully uh, identified as her playing chess. Hmm. That's not correct. Chess wouldn't come about for another 4,000 years uh, in India. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's worth remembering, too. By the time chess was invented, games like this were more ancient than chess is now.
2: Yeah, that's Unbelievable. Uh, I love putting ancient history in that kind of perspective, like thinking about the things – uh, the, the things in ancient Egypt that were older to the ancient Romans mm-hmm. than ancient Rome is to us. Exactly. And that's always something I like to keep in perspective. Um, but So, uh, what do we know about this game, Sinet? We know it was played with multiple game pieces. So, there were these things that look kind of like pawns that were sometimes made of like a, a blue type uh, ceramic material. And it was played on a grid of 30 squares. So there were three rows of 10 squares. And several of the squares had symbolic hieroglyphs on them seemingly symbolizing game imagery such as the water trap like there would be a water square And while our evidence of synod is often in the form of elaborate game boxes used by the wealthy, it's speculated that the game could also have been played by the poor simply by drawing a grid in the sand or by like making scratches on a rock or a board.
3: And this is something we we see with uh, some of the later games we're going to discuss where you had the ornate version with a a little box underneath it to keep the pieces in. Mm -hmm. But then you also see evidence of graffiti versions where someone just scrawled it on, on stone and played it. Exactly. Now, the exact rules for Senate, though, are, are ultimately just a matter of conjecture. Yeah, we um,
2: know some things, sort of, but we don't fully know how the game was originally played. Right. And you can just imagine this exercise taking
3: various modern games and imagine, you know, opening them and having absolutely no instructions, no written language about how they were played. Mm-hmm. In some cases, you can... Pretty much piece it together. Fireball Island, Candy, Candyland, especially <laughs> snakes and ladders or shoots and ladders. These are games that you know you can you can figure it out pretty quickly. Other games with more uh, you know ambiguity, harder to tell. Right? If you took a, a box of Arkham Horror, mm. it's hard enough to tell what you're supposed to do in Arkham Horror when you have the rules. <laughs> But if you have no rules, I can imagine there would be different models based on it. Well, we think it was played this way. We think these tiles were possibly used in this way, shape, or form.
2: Future archaeologists 5,000 years from now are definitely going to be able to figure out how to play Crossfire. Because that's <laughs> just obvious. You can't miss it.
3: Yeah. Hungry, hungry hippos. Yeah. <laughs> that's
2: another one. Though, of course, you can determine some things, as we were saying, just by looking at what the what we've been talking about is the materials of the game are. What are the things you have to work with? It's believed that this game, Sinet was played by casting uh, of some equivalent of dice, maybe casting knuckle bones or throwing sticks. and this would help determine what kind of moves you could make.
3: Knuckle bones, by the way, uh, often these would be uh, uh, knuckle bones from say a sheep or a goat, so mm-hmm. something that was you know regularly slaughtered and, and used for uh, uh, to manufacture items. Mm-hmm. And it would be something more like a, a four-sided dice, yeah. uh, like a D4 in modern gaming terms.
2: I don't know for sure, but I would have to guess that that would mean it's... it's, The biological shape would mean it's not quite perfectly random which number you get. Like, there is actually a bias towards some of the faces of the die since it's not... You know, perfectly machined to be equal. That's a good point. But I don't know that. That just seems likely to me. Uh, one of the really interesting things about Sinet is how this game held sacred connotations for the ancient Egyptians. Like it doesn't seem to be a coincidence that Nefertari is shown playing the game in a painting within her own tomb. Uh, the Pharaoh Tutankhamun was also buried with Sinet game boxes among his grave goods to be taken into the next life. And we mentioned earlier that the name of the game means passing. It's the game of passing. And this probably has significance on the board itself because it's believed that you played the game by sort of advancing past your opponent along the squares and you could like pass your opponent, you could block your opponent. So it is in some ways literally a game of passing in terms of its mechanics. But Senet also... Seems to hold this strong religious significance associated with death, which for the ancient Egyptians meant passing on into the afterlife through this cosmic journey. I know, Robert, you've talked about that on stuff to blow your mind before. You know the the uh, beliefs about the journey of the dead among the ancient Egyptians. Where yeah.
3: You'd venture through the netherworld. Yeah, it's not just a matter of uh, you're going off to something we would think of as sort of a modern paradise. Yeah, there's there like a, trials. There are trials stuff. and you know continued adventures and adversaries in the the in the Egyptian afterlife, and that's one of the reasons that the uh, the departed has to bring all this stuff with
2: them. Yeah, like some of it they're bringing things they like, uh-huh. but they're also bringing things they will need. Exactly, and so it may serve some purpose to like. Uh, I mean I'm thinking about passing time in the afterlife. There are all these – I don't know if this is just a (laughs) curious feature of English in in how these ironies are stacking up. But so this is a game which – like the idea of a game in ancient India often meant – you know they literally meant time passing, like the passing of time in Mm -hmm. a game. Uh, So games are for in a way passing time. The mechanics of the game involve passing players as the game of passing and the meaning of the game spiritually has to do with passing into immortality –
3: Huh, interesting. Boy, there's probably a lot you could do with just looking at how different board games interpret linear and cyclical time. Yeah. Um, or both to some extent, you know, of taking taking our existence and piecing them out into step by step.
2: Well, yeah, I mean I, this is – so if this game in some way is presented as a model of something that these people believed actually happened to them – We still have games like that today. I mean, we were talking earlier about the game of life. I mean, the game of life in many ways you could think of as a kind of um – like, normative model formation engine for, like, this is what a life looks like. You mm-hmm. you know, go to college, you get a job, and you start a family. And the game of life kind of enforces that by having you go through these motions over and over again. It's all there in the fluff, like all the normative things that are being suggested about what life should be like. Perhaps Senate is the same way. I mean— When thinking about the religious details of the game, I started to wonder about if some part of the purpose of the game was uh, not necessarily to have the negative connotations of this word but propagandistic, to Mm. spread particular ideas through a catchy and inherently fun medium. It wouldn't be the only game that did this, right? We just mentioned the game of life but think about Monopoly. Even though it's one of the most popular board games in modern history, Monopoly has its roots like thoroughly in pushing a particular point of view. Specifically, it was created in the early 1900s by a writer, inventor, and progressive activist named Lizzie Magee, or Maggie, M-A-G-I-E. And Maggie invented it specifically to illustrate the dangers and evils of monopolies, of wealth accumulation, and of these like rent-seeking barons that you become in the game.
3: Yeah, it's ironic because monopoly has, in in a very simple way, it kind of glorifies this idea of the the, the mustachioed rich man, right? That's the funny thing. It
2: originally wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to do the opposite. The original title of her game was The Landlord's Game. Mm -hmm. And Maggie summed it up, uh, summed up her goal to a reporter in 1906 by saying, quote, in a short time, I hope a very short time, men and women will discover that they are poor because Carnegie and Rockefeller maybe have more than they know what to do with.
3: Yeah, again, that is the directly the opposite of the the message, if you want to say, that modern monopoly has. is directly the opposite of the message of monopoly.
2: Well, I think it would depend on how you frame it. But yeah, I mean, it, pe- people don't tend to take that away, do they?
3: Well, what's the Monopoly guy's name? He has a name, right? He's Mr. Moneybags, right? Mr. Moneybags looks too cute and adorable. Like, he needs to <laughs> he needs to have more of this gnarled Ebenezer Scrooge-like vibe to him, you know?
2: Wearing like a necklace of bones and yeah. all that.
3: Yeah, it needs to be less this, uh, yeah, it needs to be less cute. It needs to be grotesque in some fashion. Like like the real ultra-rich are.
2: Well, they had to make the game friendly to children. That's where they <laughs> went wrong. Uh, but, uh, a funny thing also about the game is that she was apparently interested in using it to promote Georgian economics, this set of ideas stemming from the economist Henry George. Did you did you know about this, Robert? No, I did not. Yeah, so basically George suggested that people should not be taxed. I think this is the, the basic form. People shouldn't be taxed on the income from the work they do but instead should be taxed so that the spoils of land ownership and subsequently like natural resources and rent and everything are distributed equally among everyone. So you can't make money just by owning. Land or by owning a mine or something mm-hmm. like that. Instead, you can only make money on the work you do.
3: All right. But Monopoly is a game in which that's what you do. You just acquire things and just money comes in because you own them.
2: so you're playing as the bad guy in Monopoly. (laughs) But again, it gets – you know, it gets kind of – you start thinking about it backwards. Uh, But anyway, of course, the game became wildly popular, especially in these derivative forms uh, for for which other game designers apparently claimed credit. Uh, But it didn't necessarily teach the players, as we're saying, all the things that Maggie hoped it would. And so this is something else to consider that – It's widely agreed, as we were saying earlier, that the rules of games change over time. You know, games don't stay fixed, they evolve. And I want to pair that with the fact that you don't often have to put much effort at all into a task to make it feel like a game. Just framing it as a game can be effective in making it feel fun and like a game. And this has been demonstrated by empirical research, you know, the whole uh, Tom Sawyer painting the fence trick. You know, this is a great game where you paint the fence uh, and everybody wants to get in on it. Apparently, there is some research that shows this is true. I was looking at a study – from 2015 in the journal Games and Culture by Andreas Liberoth that uh, is called Shallow Gamification, Testing Psychological Effects of Framing an Activity as a Game. And it found, you know, you don't really have to do much work to make something into a game. You just sort of call it a game yeah. and the base, basically frame it as a game and people will enjoy it as if it is a game. So anyway, my, my crazy series of thoughts here is I wonder if games maybe like Synet as an example – could be created to teach or model or advocate a particular view of the world, a political view of the world, a religious view of the world, creating some kind of normative model of how people should see things or how people should behave or act, but later end up spreading and remaining popular simply because the game mechanics are fun and then the fluff loses meaning or gets shed or gets changed over time, sort of like happened with Monopoly.
3: Yeah, yeah, this this would be a discussion for another time, but like you do wonder what does a particular Country or regions' popular game forms. What does that say about them? Yeah. Like, what does Monopoly say about the U.S.? And I think it's unfair to have that be our game. But <laughs> right. but what would what does Monopoly's popularity say about the United States? What does say uh, Settlers of Catan and other um, uh, like German and uh, European design games? What do they say about mainland Europe? What does the popularity of Warhammer Forty Thousand say about <laughs> the United Kingdom? Uh, oh, is that
2: where it comes from? Oh yes. Oh yeah.
3: Um, and, it, and again, these are pre- perhaps uh, this would be an attempt to read too much into a game's popularity. But uh, but at the same time, I, I, I do agree that I, I I think there there is some sort of influence taking place. Like you, to to engage in a in a game, to engage in a system of a game's rules, mm-hmm. uh, you're really putting your head in it. You're putting your your you're taking your thought process and forcing it to mimic. The, the, the systematic uh, layout of the game.
2: Yes, but as we're seeing, it seems like if the game is fun, it's possible that the, the layout of the game, you know, the thing that maybe even it was intended to teach or put you in the frame of mind of, that can all be lost, can all be changed. It's possible that Sinet is something that's created for a kind of normative cultural purpose in ancient Egypt. It mm-hmm. serves to teach something about their religion and their society and all that. But because it's a fun game, it spreads to other societies Societies for which these meanings don't really carry over,
3: right? So they're just they're just stuck with the mechanics, yeah. And uh, and that's what they can continues to live on.
2: I mean, another way of thinking about this could be that the original forms of chess were, you know, what were they for? Perhaps they were for trying to like teach a military mindset to young knights or something mm-hmm. like that. But the, you know, that's not necessarily what they're for now. It just turns out that the the mechanics of the game are too fun to be contained, and they survive their original cultural context or meaning. So now we're going to be talking about the Royal Game of Ur, another ancient game from thousands of years ago. Last time we talked about the Egyptian board game, Senet. This is a um, somewhat similar game, though it's different. Senet was a game of 30 squares Mm -hmm. that were lined up in three rows of 10 squares. And you somehow advanced along the the squares and tried to pass your opponent – Er is somewhat different, but it's also a game of squares, right?
3: Yeah, it's uh, it's basically two square grids connected by uh, this little bridge. So you have a three by two grid, and then you have a three by four grid, and then you have a two square horizontal bridge connecting the two. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, we said the name of this is is the game of Ur, and I believe if anyone who's listened to stuff to blow your mind, you might remember that we've in the past mentioned the Great Ziggurat of Ur. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same Ur. Uh, okay, it, it's a, in what is now southern Iraq. Um, and uh, to be clear, evidence of the game of Ur dates it to the same time period as the Great Pyramid of Giza. We're talking 2500 BCE. Uh, I think about, we've also seen 2600 BCE as a date
2: for the game of Ur. Okay, so almost as ancient as Sinat.
3: Yeah, yeah, pretty old. Now, we're not, again, this is another one where we're not exactly sure how the game was played with this curious board, but different scholars have weighed in to suggest how the pieces moved or might have moved and how they might have even battled in the narrow channel between the smaller and greater grids. Uh, game historian uh, Andrea Becker believes that the origins of the game might have been a form of divination. Oh, OK. So that again. Yeah, with specific boards related to specific sorts of divination. What's more, she argues that they they might have also served as a way to teach divination. So that's interesting. So instead of teaching, um, you know, some sort of economic model, <laughs> uh-huh. it's about teaching someone
2: how to uh, divine the future. Huh. Well, so now I'm seeing three ways that you can have a relationship between ancient board games and divination divination methods. So you could have one one route that's just derivative, right? You've got divination methods where, say, you throw knuckle bones to get an answer from the gods, and then you also realize that that can be used to determine outcomes in an abstract scenario, which is like a game, so it's just derivative of divination. Another route or connection here would be that it's used to teach divination, a third would be that it is a form of divination, that the board game itself is a method of consulting the gods.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it gets into the whole situation. Like, is any battle game, is it a battle? Is it a simulation of a battle? Is it, is it preparing you to simulate or take place in a battle?
2: Yeah. Is it a derivative from battle principles? Is it designed to teach you battle? Or is it actually a form of battle that's supposed to decide something?
3: Exactly. Now, uh, one of the, the the cool things about Ur is that eventually we did get some codified uh, uh, writings about how it is played. Uh, not, not so clear, apparently, that there's not a lot of continued discussion about mm. exactly how it was played. And, of course, how it was played probably changed over time. Right. But many centuries after its, uh, its introduction, you did have a clay tablet uh, mm. from uh, 177 BCE. That, that weighed in on how to play it mm-hmm. and it's a rare exception to the loss to history nature of, of board game designers because uh, if accounts are true uh, uh, and of course we have to sort of apply a grain of salt when we're talking about individuals described uh, as doing things in ancient texts. But yeah. um, the rules for, uh, for the, this game were codified by the Babylonian scholar and scribe uh, Iti Marduk Balatu in 177 BCE. And he even added new features, which uh, Brian Fagan um, in his book uh, said, quote, enliven it for the contemporary gambler. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming that means play mechanics and not mere fluff.
2: But there is a there is a lot of interesting fluff to this game, actually. And the fluff, I would say, seems to coincide with the idea that the game was used for divination related purposes, maybe to teach divination or maybe actually as a form of divination uh, associated with astrology, right?
3: That's right. Uh, so a man by the name of Irving Finkel uh, with the British Museum, I believe, uh, he translated the cuneiform and believed that while there were strong astrological aspects to Ur, he believed it was still primarily a game. So mm-hmm. that the... So the astrology was fluff, as opposed to uh, its its primary purpose in society.
2: But the fluff is really interesting. Like I looked up uh, some of this uh, writing and translation work by Irving Finkel on the cuneiform of the the original board. And so what the evidence shows is that the squares of the board were often labeled in a way that caused the game board to produce prediction statements as you played it. Uh, And this is from Irving Finkel. And so you'd have these ways that the game board could produce sort of a sentence, but it would also be associated with an astrological sign. So, uh, So you could have the game board say, one who sits in a tavern, or I will pour out the dregs for you. Or you will find a friend. Oh, well, that's nice. Or you will stand in exalted places. Or you will be powerful like a lion. Or you will go up the path. Uh, there are a bunch of interesting ones. Uh, like one who weighs up silver. I love these. They they make the game feel very creepy and elemental. Or
3: the one that says, you will cut meat. You will cut meat. That's a great one. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean, is it good meat? Like I will... I will have a feast in my honor and I will be the one to cut it? Or is it more like I will work at the butcher shop?
2: I don't know. You will cut meat. Apparently, it's associated with the astrological sign of Aquarius. Uh, And there are other similarities like that. Like, you will be powerful like a lion is associated with the sign of Leo.
3: Now, this gets really interesting because, you know, we... We can think about uh, ourselves. Uh, We can think of modern humans. And for us, divination practices can be fun. Again, going back to the idea of the – something like a fortune cookie at an American Chinese restaurant or – Magic 8-Ball. Or Magic 8-Ball.
2: Or, you know, what's actually also at the intersection of a game and a divination practice is – you remember the game M.A.S.H. that, uh, that kids would play in elementary school and stuff?
3: Um, Are you talking about with the the folding paper?
2: Yeah, it was – well, I think it was related to that. MASH I think stands for uh, Mansion, Apartment, Shack, House. Uh And so it would be a thing where you'd have a number of options for different things that could come out of it. So you'd be like, who will you marry? And then you'd give like four options and then – Uh, Thing you'd use some kind of pseudo-random procedure to generate a number that would like have you go through the list, uh, counting a certain number of places to like rule out answers until you got to the end. And the end would give you some combination of possible answers. So it would be like you will live in a mansion and you'll be married to Tim Curry and, you you know, et et cetera.
3: Huh, interesting. So so yeah, there's the fun side to divination, but even today people people get taken in by by divination uh and it can be a very stressful, a very serious situation. Oh yeah. That you can, you know, people can lose a lot of money uh investing in divination. But then likewise, gaming is much the same. Games can be a lot of fun, but if you you're playing the wrong game, you're playing with the wrong people, or you're playing with the wrong attitude, games can be a, a seriously unpleasant experience.
2: Yeah. Okay, we just got a MASH update from Tari outside the booth here. Apparently Tari was a big MASH fan and she says one important part we left out is that you've got to add bad options in your MASH list. Yeah. So uh, it's like, I guess, the the shack in MASH. You also like, if you have potential husbands you'll marry, one of them has got to be a really like lame, ugly guy uh, so that you'll end up with funny combinations, she says. So maybe you're living in a mansion uh, but you're married to Pee Wee Herman. <laughs>
3: you know, this reminds me a little bit of a... Of a- a card game that i've really enjoyed playing uh, recently called gloom Okay, and it uses these transparent cards that actually have a mechanical uh, purpose in the game. But essentially, mm-hmm. you have these cards that indicate different members of your sort of Edward Gorey uh, style family, mm-hmm. and then you want to have the most miserable family that dies uh, in horror.
2: Oh, you told me about yeah. this. And, yes. other, and
3: so, and, and so, what you try to do is to make sure your family has the most horrible experience possible and dies off. Meanwhile, bestowing. Um, you know uh, uh, happy things upon the other so so you want your um, family members to say catch uh, some awful plague and drown in a well but then you want uh, members of uh, of the opposing families to say frolic with a kitten or something like that
2: uh uh-huh. so mash is the mash is complex it's got to include both possible outcomes right it's yeah. part gloom and it's part mirror mirror on the wall it's like part giving you all the stuff you want to hear and then also it's got to throw in some bad news to make it real <laughs> All right.
3: Well, let's uh, let's bring it back to Ur here. So, okay. Uh, there's at least one theory that Ur eventually evolved into backgammon. Hmm. So uh, again, we see this time and time again with these old games, like looking at the the possible lines that connected them, and then also kind of like. Like species, like like actual organisms, you see examples where one game was kind of killed off by another. You had like an invasive game come uh-huh. in from another culture, and everyone's like, "Whoa, why aren't we playing this when we could be playing that?" And then a game dies. But um, uh, another interesting thing that Finkel brought up is uh, that uh, that it, probably, it likely used uh, what were known as uh, astragals, and these would have been those four sided dice made from the knuckle bones of sheep or goats. Mm. Uh, again, it's it's so fascinating to think of of many modern board and dice games as the tail end of something that began in perhaps divination maps and rattled animal bones, you know. Uh, in, in this sense, all games are potentially occult exercises. By the way, Finkel apparently has a couple of books about out about ancient board games that feature rules and punch out boards and spinners. Oh, that sounds like uh, so, fun. Uh, you know, so y- younger players especially can, can try out at least versions of what some of these ancient games could have consisted
2: of. We well, you got to wonder, like, what are the best games lost to history? You, you, we know that there must have been lots of games oh, that yeah. we don't even really know anything about or maybe only have a hint of we don't know all the rules that could be the most fun game ever. They could be so addictive and we d- we just don't know what they are because there's, of course, an endless possible combination of rules you can come up with for moving pieces around on a board. Maybe there's like the ultimate perfect game out there and it's totally unknown.
3: What if they, they basically had Space Hulk in Babylonian <laughs> times? Because again, coming back to what I said, there's no reason you couldn't have a game with the exact same mechanics as Space Hulk right. take place in... In an
2: ancient setting, but I thought what was a major part of the appeal of Space Hulk was the fluff. Like you like the illustrations and the setting and all that, right? Well, I
3: do, but then, but Space Hulk also has this wonderful mechanic mm-hmm. where you have two, you have two forces. You have the humans, yeah. who, who are super powered and tough, but then you have the horde, and the horde. Uh, the, so the timing is different. So when the humans go, when the human player goes, uh, they have a time limit. Uh, they have a certain amount of time in which they have to make all their moves and use all of their movement points. Mm. But the player controlling the, the alien hordes of the the gene stealers, they have all the time they need. Mm. So it, I, I do feel like there is something primal and attractive in the mechanics of Space Hulk that captures okay. this feeling of, of you know, it's like, it's, like, it's so grimdark. It's the most grimdark game because <laughs> it's like I am up against death. I am up against this thing that is ever patient and everlasting and is probably, in the game, I mean, it's probably going to kill you. It's yeah. a very dangerous game to play. Um, and part of the fun is not in, oh, did I win, but... Did I almost win?
2: Now, if I understand the Warhammer universe correctly, it would also be the implication that the humans are not really good, right?
3: No, no, the humans are awful, but <laughs> but, they're, but they're the best choice compared to all of the other awful things in the universe. All right, which does feel kind of like appropriately like like ancient that it could have the mechanics like this could have found their their way in, say, a Babylonian. Uh, Uh, mindset. Well, I like that. All right. Let's take one more break. When we come back, uh, we're going to just roll through a few more examples of ancient board games and board games of note, and then we're going to close out.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love
3: Start saving on wireless today at visible.com monthly rate on the visible plan for data management practices and additional terms. Visit visible.com. All right, we're back.
2: Now, one of the ancient games that, uh, that seemed kind of interesting to me is a game of, if I understand correctly, it's basically of unknown mechanics known as Liu Bo, which is an ancient Chinese board game.
3: Right. Uh, the name means six sticks. It's the game of six sticks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lubo Bo sounds a lot better, it rolls off the tongue t- t- right. a, lot, a lot easier. Uh, so the, the rules of this game, yeah, are still uncertain, but we see figurines of men playing it from Han Dynasty tombs, that would have been uh, the area of uh, 2002 BCE to 220 CE. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was likely invented in the first millennium BCE. But the height of its popularity was definitely the Han Dynasty. So there would have been two players, there was a board, and sticks were thrown to determine the movement of pieces. And one of the reasons we don't know a lot about this game is this game died out because there was an invasive. There was another game that was a competitor. Ah. The game of Go entered the picture in uh, the Zhou Dynasty uh, around uh, somewhere in the region of uh, 1046 through 256 BC, E, and uh, eventually just overtook uh, Lubo uh, to become the most important board game in Chinese culture, and it remains so to this day. Now we didn't. Uh, uh, you know, we're talking about casting the sticks here. One thing we didn't even really get into this uh, into it all in this was the, the the long dice. You see these uh, referenced in um, in some of the Hindu epics oh, yeah. talking about casting the long dice in battle. You know, now, and what it, is that? Well, they're just a, they were a type of dice that were that were long and more stick like. Huh. Uh, but they were used as a as, as a, a form of uh, of generating a, a random uh, figure. Now, speaking of India, we do have to, to at least touch on chess really quickly. Uh, again, chess, a much later game than anything else we've discussed here. First millennium CE uh, came out of India, and uh, it still commands a global following today. And it's it, even though it's not as, as ancient as these other games, it's still pretty old. And it's really impressive that chess remains such a standard of strategic board games. Mm-hmm. You know, like it is, I mean, it is kind of the gold standard.
2: Uh, I mean, I think it's one of those games that doesn't really need much fluff because its mechanics are so solid, right? That it uh, is—there is such a thing. I mean, I think, again, we should acknowledge, we've sort of been hinting at this, that it's pretty clear that some games are just inherently better than others mechanically. I mean there's a, such a thing as a much more balanced game that's, uh, th- that does better at allowing different types of strategy and thus makes it more interesting because there are more different ways you can achieve a win. There are other games that are, that are I think just sort of easier to hack – Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that that makes for a bad game, a game that's easy to hack. Yeah, or you break g- the game? Yeah, or, or a game that requires no skill at all, of course. But right. uh, among games that require a skill, if there's a way to hack it so that you, if you just know a certain strategy, you can pretty much always win, that game becomes less interesting. Tic-tac-toe is a good example of that. I mean, right. if you know how to play and you go first, you can always either win or be forced to a draw.
3: Right. I think another similar example is Apples to Apples. Yeah. (laughs) Which can be a fun game. I'm not anti-apples to apples. But if one person does not want to play, if one person wants to break the game, they will break it.
2: Oh, that's breaking in the opposite way. Yeah. yeah. Breaking by like not uh, having a strategy that just always wins, but breaking by ruining it for everybody. Right. Though most games that involve – most games that involve any kind of like, I don't know, intelligent input or verbal input by the player I feel like can be like that. It it seems to me – I'm not – I don't have as much experience with D&D as you do. But it seems to me Dungeons & Dragons is clearly a game where one bad player can completely ruin the game.
3: Well, yeah, there's such a social context with Dungeons & Dragons. Um, I was talking to this with, with uh, one of the gamers I play with recently about the idea of competitive Dungeons & Dragons mm-hmm. and how there, there have been some efforts to create sort of the—I uh, wouldn't necessarily say a limited rule set, but certainly a system in which you could have competitive game playing mm-hmm. uh, between characters. And then uh, you could also, I guess— there are some of the older, like, really fierce dungeons that can be used as a competitive uh, environment. But for the most part, you're not going to see games of Dungeons & Dragons on, say, ESPN 6 or whatever. But you will see games of Magic the Gathering on there <laughs> because Magic the Gathering is is more of a traditional game. It is a traditional card game that has hard, fast rules uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and does not have this social role-playing element to it. Another example, and this is one we have a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind About, but Werewolf oh, yeah. is a highly social game. And certainly if, if, you, if you were playing Werewolf with people that were not on board with it, uh, and I don't even like to imagine people of that caliber, but if, <laughs> if you were trying to play a game with people who are not into it, um, you know, it,
2: would, it would wreck the game. You just wouldn't be able to play Werewolf. Absolutely. A one obnoxious player will ruin the experience.
3: Now I mentioned earlier uh, you know what happens when an invasive game game comes in and it's better than what you have uh-huh. uh one example of that is the viking game uh tablet uh this is one of the Norse taffle games from uh, the 4th through 12th centuries mm-hmm. probably based on the earlier Roman game uh ludus uh, latrun Kuluruma. and it was replaced by chess in the 12th century so basically they 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 found chess and they're like whoa this is way better than than this thing Let's
2: just switch to chess, and they did. Now, that makes it interesting also because that suggests that certain games occupy certain almost like ecological niches within culture if they can be displaced like that. Because one game obviously does not displace all other games. Right? You know, a new game doesn't come in and say now this is the only game people play and all other games are gone. It can it can bre- beat out certain games and it's it makes it suggest that like a, there's an ecosystem of play and that certain games fill so, certain roles within that and that if another game comes in and fills that particular role better than that, game will win out uh, but you you wouldn't see chess replacing foot racing you know right
3: yeah yeah the, the, there's a certain place in your culture in your life maybe even daily or weekly life uh, that this game can occupy and if something fits that fits that that role better
2: then uh, yeah it's going to take over It also suggests that there are different kinds of fun Mm -hmm. and that certain games elicit one particular type of fun but not another one. So, they'll be in competition for that limited fun resource that people have to give. As one consequence of, uh, of thinking like this, I've sometimes wondered like, okay, how much overlap is there between the demand for board games and the demand for video games? Will video games ever completely replace board games
3: Well, it's it's been interesting to to sort of watch this play out, right? Mm -hmm. Because today we have so many amazing video games. Uh, Just, you know, the, the graphics, the complexity, the different types of video games. And at the same time, Look at the board game renaissance that we're living in. We're just living in a golden age of you, you can go out and you can find so many different types of, of competitive games, strategic games, cooperative games, mm-hmm. games that mix competition and cooperation, games with a million different varieties of fluff to them, games for, for old people, young people, different levels of uh, rule complexity, games in, you know, that certainly have some basis in video game design. Like there's certain uh, communication between the two worlds uh, for sure. But there's there's just there's just so much out there. Like clearly, board games fulfill something in our our lives that a, a video game cannot quite handle.
2: Yeah, one clear example is that board games have some kind of social element that's um, I don't want to say more mainstream because that's not necessarily it. But the social element that's more acceptable among certain kinds of social. Uh, settings than video games do. Like I can see there are people who would be into going over to a friend's house for a board game night, Mm -hmm. but who would not be going into going over to a friend's house for a video game night. Well,
3: right. Yeah, I remember going over to like people's places and they're playing rock band, mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a game where you work together. You play it together with other people, but every where's everybody looking. They're looking at the screen. Yeah, it's just it was kind of a sad sight. But you go over and you play a board game together, uh, and you're you're facing each other. Yeah. You, you end get, up
2: hating each other. Well,
3: yeah, depending on the game, right? But but you have this interface between you. It's this this thing that's bringing you together. And certainly, video games can be very social. There are some wonderful online communities built up around these. Mm -hmm. But the board game is a – it facilitates a – more of a a physical in-person connection. You know, it is people who would otherwise not gather around a table Mm -hmm. uh, and have anything to talk about can gather around the right game and and they're good to go.
2: After all this discussion, I'm kind of interested in coming back to the question we started with. I don't know if we've answered this, but uh, to think a little bit more about now that we've looked at these games, what is the what is the role these games are playing in the biological impulse toward play? Again, we know that we haven't fully answered the question of why play exists among animals like us, but there are all these theories that maybe it signals reproductive fitness, that maybe it helps teach us skills we need later in life, maybe it helps makes make us more versatile, you know, things like that where do board games fit into these theories if if anywhere
3: indeed i hope this is a this is a question that people will take with them uh, as they go on to inevitably play board games uh with their friends with family with coworkers with strangers uh, however you want to do it um and certainly if you weren't planning to play a board game maybe consider uh, picking one up or pulling one out of the the closet uh, as we begin to close out here, uh, we always want to thank Scott Benjamin for helping us out with uh, research on these episodes. Scott brought a number of cool uh, board game facts and, uh, and lists uh, to our uh, to our attention, including a couple of world records that are interesting to look at in light of everything we've discussed. Uh-huh. So one of them is the the largest collection of board games. Uh, as of uh, 2011, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it was one uh, Jeff Bospies in the United States with... 1,531 different board games.
2: You know, that's too many board games. It does sound like a lot. I'm sorry. I don't know. I don't want to be judgmental, but like, can you really play all those?
3: Well, it sounds doable. It's not (laughs) improbable. Um, And then the longest marathon playing a board game. uh, This was uh, from 2017. 80 hours achieved by four participants in the Netherlands. Uh, and this was from January 3rd through the 6th of 2017. They played a total of 400 games of Ganzenbord, Game of the Goose, during the 80-hour marathon.
2: That sounds like too many games of Gonzenboard. Yeah. I mean, you could have fit
3: like um, three games of Arkham Horror <laughs> instead. So I'm seemed... sorry.
2: I'm getting all finger-waggy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
3: I love Go Ar- home, guys. <laughs> I, I kid Arkham Horror. I, I love Arkham Horror, but I've also never completed a game of Arkham Horror. Um, so anyway, uh, just a couple of uh, of Guinness uh, World Records to help close out these two episodes on games.
2: I just had one more thought about thinking about the the role of uh, board games among the the biological category of play, mm. and maybe a way of approaching the question of what role they serve or what they what the real essence is is to think about what makes a board game not fun, <laughs> like that. That might help us come in on it so one thing that's definitely not fun is when board games are too easy to win right right uh when uh or when the, there's no skill involved like i mean i guess little kids enjoy playing candyland but just general like roll the dice and move your pieces and have no skill involved that's not fun
3: yeah not for yeah not for grown and advanced players um likewise i one frustration i've had with certain games and i won't name them is is when i've played a game where there were too many ways to win. Like it was, uh, there. Were, I, I, I like having a certain amount of complexity. Like it's mm-hmm. neat when you have like a doom counter and, you know, there are several different things going on at once. But there was at least one game I played and I just, it was like there were five different ways to win it. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing, like how I was supposed to uh, employ strategy. I just felt kind of lost in the system. And uh, I felt like it needed to be It needed to be somewhat simplified, at least for a first play.
2: I know exactly what you mean. At a game night here in the office... I once – we played a game that was some kind of like zombie outbreak setting type game. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of it before, but it had so many rules. The, the rule book was like a novel <laughs> and there were just so many different things you could do or had to do each turn. And we played this game for like multiple hours and still – and we had never figured out how to play by the end – by the time we stopped. Right. Um And that is frustrating. That's like, that's not fun. Maybe some people have fun doing that, but I don't, and I think a lot of players don't. So there's also a part of us that desires a game to be concise. Like, there's a certain kind of elegance in games that have a small list of rules from which great complexity of gameplay emerges.
3: Right. I also like it when a game organically gradually in increases the the complexity mm-hmm. so there's a there's a game i really like called fabled fruit mm-hmm. and it's uh it's basically a card game very kid friendly and but uh, the, the the cards change as you progress so when they start off it's very simple you're trying to collect different fruits to make different essentially smoothies mm-hmm. and each smoothie is a point but you 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 quickly move through the initial cards and you get in – In the the more you play the game, the more complex the mechanics of the cards becomes. But, but you're going to work up to that. Like you just work up to that point by virtue of playing the game. And I think that's just a rather clever mechanic. Uh, even if you may never even get to the later cards, you know. Uh, I ser- certainly haven't playing it with my son. But he loves playing it at the level we're at and it's comforting knowing that we could keep playing it and it would just get uh, – more complicated, but he would be able to roll with it via the experience of playing with it at lower levels.
2: I love that. Yeah, the games with a, um, would you, what do what you call it, a slow learning curve or yeah. whatever, the games that are easy to pick up and difficult to master, that seems like the sweet spot of what a game should be if it's really great. Like, the, you know, that there is a lot of skill and strategy involved if you know what you're doing, but also it's not impossible to just get going and understand how the game works.
3: All right, well, we're going to close it off there, but obviously you've all played board games or, or and or card games and various other games that fall under this loose category, and we would love to hear from you about them. What are your favorites? What are your least favorites? Uh, hey, have any of you played some variation on the ancient games that we've discussed here? Uh, the, the, the proposed rule systems are out there. You can find uh, proposed rules for UR and uh, uh online. So if you've done that, let us know what you thought of them. What was it like to to sit down and play some variation of this this ancient leisure activity?
2: Did it make you feel like a pharaoh? <laughs>
3: Maybe so. Uh, as always, you can find the other episodes of Invention at at inventionpod.com. Uh, you'll find links to our social media accounts there. If you want to discuss the show and discuss your favorite board games Uh, and you're on Facebook, head on over to the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module. That's where listeners discuss our other show, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but also episodes of Invention. It's a good place to interact with other listeners and also uh, with the two of us.
2: Thanks to our friend Scott Benjamin for research assistance on this episode and to our excellent audio producer, Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact At InventionPod.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent.